Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Adam. <laughs> what time is it down in Georgia? Uh, 11.51 p.m., nine minutes from my, my pumpkin hour when I pass out. How about you in New York? I it's, assume we're in the time. Still, yes, we're still, still, still in the same, same time, time zone. zone. Well, let's be honest. It's not five minutes to, it's 50 minutes past your bedtime. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure our listeners are riveted to know, but we had a really, quite a rough weekend. We were planning to uh, release an episode that was really dear to my heart with one of my favorite historians, who's, who also was my my teacher. Mm-hmm. A great conversation that I thought would be a wonderful way to start 2021, but the audio was revealed itself unusable. to be unusable, un, utterly unusable. So... We will hopefully be recording another conversation um, with this dear, dear man. But uh, for today, we're going to change our schedule and release an interview with Professor Zor Goshen, which we slated to release later this month. Zor is a law professor at Columbia University and a dominant figure in financial and corporate regulation. Back in Israel, he was chairman of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission right during the financial crisis of 2008. So it was basically on the front line fighting to regulate the stock market just as the stock market was collapsing. We talked a little bit about that, but that was not our main topic of conversation. Our main focus is a paper that he is currently releasing, co-authored with Professor Doron Levitt, and we thought that it deserves the full Deep dive. And it's it's really it was really interesting paper and it's a really unique perspective. Absolutely. He is proposing, I would say, a provocative argument trying to explain one of the greatest underlying problems of American society right now, which is the asymptotal rise in income inequality. And while he acknowledges all the explanations that we commonly hear, like automation, globalization, what he does is offer a new cold analytical interpretation that relies on his understanding of corporate law and American economic history. And now if you turn on your talk radio or or go to Twitter, you'll hear a lot of really angry voices telling you who's to blame for our financial woes at the moment. But in Zar's explanation, you're going to find no villains, at least not overt ones. Because what his theory shows is how very small changes to the law, to policy, and to business practices can lead to horrible, unintended consequences. So, fair warning. We asked Zor to, to try and you know, explain things to, to peasants like Vanessa and myself, but we didn't want him to dumb it down too much. After all, that's the whole point of having a freaking long-form podcast. So it does get technical. And especially if you're like me and Adam and you haven't, you know, like cracked open an econ book since like high school, you know, it we he took he did a great job of walking us through the kind of basic economic principles. Um, but if you already know all the basic economic principles, you could probably like skip ahead a little bit. But for those who need a refresher like us, like definitely it's still really interesting and it'll still teach you a lot. So still stick stick into the beginning if if you're like us. And I think the payoff is great. And Zar is just a generally interesting person. And also happens to be someone that you've known for quite some time. Yeah, I was a regular guest at the Goshen's Friday Night Dinners. Those were simpler times. And he's actually <laughs> our first and only relative of a previous guest <laughs> on, on Uncertain Things. Yeah, he's we actually- will leave it to our keen and avid listeners to figure <laughs> out who 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Anyway, we hope you enjoy. We think it's really worth your time. Stick with Zohar and stick with us. You should rate us on Apple Podcasts. Oh, welcome to Uncertain Things. Welcome to Uncertain Things. One, one day, uh, one day we'll remember. One day we'll remember. And with that, Zohar Goshen. Hey, Zohar, thank you for, for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. We, like I, I told you over the phone, it's it's something that I've been looking for an excuse to do with you for a while, and um, we've known each other for some time since you were a little kid. <laughs> since I was was a a, a little cranky kid. Cranky, uh, it's your words. <laughs> you you provided me my my first experience of a saturday night uh family dinner which is which was lovely because it's it's not something that we we used to do in our household and it's 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 great but for our listeners who don't know you as well as i do can you give us a little a brief elevator bio thank you so much for for the invitation it's a it's a great pleasure and honor and i uh, i thank you for the invitation Uh, i'm a professor of law at columbia law school I teach corporate law, corporate governance, securities regulation, corporate finance. And in addition to that, I did some other activities which are not academic activities. Uh, I was the chairman of Israel uh, Securities uh, and Exchange Commission, which is known here as the SEC, during the financial crisis between 2008 and 2011. Some other activities. Um, but most of the most of most of my life is about is about research and about writing and about teaching, which is that, which is the, the stuff that I love the most. Can you give us a quick exposition of what it is that you see your field as? So most of the economy in the Western world is done through corporations, and corporations will have owners that they get the name shareholders. But basically, you can think about them as as, as the owners of the corporation. And they would have management that will run the corporation one way or another. Uh, and the relationship between the managers and the owners, that's the focus of corporate law and corporate governance, trying to figure out um, what's appropriate, what would promote the welfare in society and what's not. Uh, so that's the main focus. And that focus is uh, taking place one step within the internal relationship within the corporations between management and, and, and owners. And another aspect of it is sometimes most of all the big corporations, those shares will be traded on the stock market. And the stock market would require some sort of regulation to make sure that the people who are buying shares on the stock market are being protected. So these are like, you can think about it like two sets of regulation. One is called corporate law that is focused on the internal relationship between shareholders and managers. And the other is called securities regulation, which is more concerned about the trading of shares on the stock market, making sure that there is disclosure and other protections to people who are buying shares. Just to, just to very, very quickly clarify, when you say shareholders and managers, this is like the manager would be like the CEO of the company and the shareholder would be like the board or something like that, that, that oversees them? Yeah. So, so it, at the beginning of this talk, I, I try to be as simple as possible, but within corporations, there is one uh, 
organization that is called the board of directors. It's uh, something between, I would say, between 10 and 20 people who are in charge of selecting the CEO and the top managers, monitoring them, and, uh, sort of designing the strategy, the business strategy for the long term for the corporation. So from my perspective at this point, the board and the managers, it's the same group. But technically, they are different. There is management, which is doing the day-to-day management of the corporation. When they wake up in the morning, they would go to the offices of the company and run the company. And there is the board, which normally would meet, I would say, once every two months. Sometimes uh, we'll have, okay, once every month. But it's not, it's not the day-to-day management of the corporation. Uh, their role is to monitor the management and to design uh, the strategic decision, to, to be involved in the, in the strategic decision of the corporation. In terms of your personal passion, in, in, in the most layman term, what are the kind of questions that fascinate you as a researcher, as a thinker in this realm? So the big questions that I'm focused on during the last, I would say, the last 10 years is corporate governance. And when I say corporate governance, it's a big word that, that seems very complex, but, but let's make it in a very simple way, okay? So let's say that Vanessa is the shareholder and Adam is the manager, uh, and Vanessa can fire Adam at will <laughs> if she decides so. That's one option. Then think about the other... She'll be stuck without <laughs> an editor then. <laughs> <laughs> and then think about the other extreme in which... Vanessa can never fire you. And now everything in between. She can fire you once a year. She can fire you once every two years. She can fire you once every five years. She can fire you every 10 years or she can never fire you. So you have like spectrum of allocation of powers between the manager and the shareholder. That's corporate governance. Corporate governance is about how much power you give to the manager Obviously, if you cannot fire the manager, he gets a lot of power. And how much you give to the shareholder? When the shareholder can fire you at will, so they have a lot of power. And this power, you can think about it like a, a given pie, 100% of power, that you can divide between the manager and the shareholder. So that's corporate governance. How much power you give to the manager and how much power uh, you give to the shareholders. In, uh, in the jargon of corporate governance, when shareholders get a lot of power compared to managers, it is known as strong governance. When managers get a lot of power, it is called weak governance. Okay? Even though it has connotation of good and bad, uh, I don't assign to that. But, but let's say in a very simple way. So my research is the consequences of being one way or another on this spectrum. What would that mean for the efficiency of corporation, for the performance of the, of the, of the economy, for social consequences of giving more power to the managers or giving more power to the shareholders? So that's what, I, that's what I've been doing in the last 10 years. So just to be clear on the language here, when we're saying governance, we're specifically referring to the governance of shareholders. Basically, how much power do shareholders have in competition with the uh, CEO or the manager or the person who, the decision maker in the company? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Right. So, yeah. so, so you can think about, that, about more power to the shareholder, 
or more power to the, to the management. And that's corporate governance. Corporate governance is about that. It's funny because for us laymen, the word governance could fall either way. But in this case, it specifically refers to the relative power of the shareholders. Mm-hmm. Strong governance means more power to the shareholders. Weak governance means more power to the manager. Exactly. In the context of, of, of the business world, when we talk about corporate governance, that's what we mean. And now in your work, you started seeing an interesting, surprising even correlation between two seemingly unrelated trends. One is a growing preference among American firms for strong governance, which means more powers to shareholders. And second is the sharp rise in income inequality. Absolutely. So, so, so just, just to get there, like as a background for, for, for this discussion, uh, let's take a few facts. And the interesting thing that all the trends I'm going to talk about now, they are all starting from about 1980. So we are talking about the last 40 years. Okay? So the one initial fact is that since 1980, wages for the American worker are not going up. So normally, there is a relationship between the level of productivity of an employee and the level of salary they get. So the higher the productivity, the more they will be paid. So this was true all the way up to 1980. Since 1980, productivity kept going up by about 70%, but salaries went up only 10% over 40 years. So this suggests that some of the money that employees should get is left for the corporation. The corporation is, getting, is not paying the, the fair salary to their employees. And then you start seeing other facts. Second fact that you see, that corporations are becoming more and more profitable. If, for example, there is something called markup. Markup is how much the corporation is adding to the cost when they sell the product. Let's say in 1980, if it costs something to produce $10, they would sell it for $12, which is the markup of 20%. Today, they would sell it for $16. So it's a huge markup. So the, the, the profitability of corporation, it's the flip side of the, of the, of the fact that, that, that employees are getting less. That's the second fact. The third fact, since the 80s, you see huge increase in the value of corporations. The value of shares in the stock market is going up even to a level which is above what you would expect that they will go up given the risk involved in investing in shares compared, let's say, in, 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 in putting the money in saving account. Okay? So, so value of corporation is going up. Now, what's surprising when you see the value of shares goes up, you see labor going down, you see profitability going up, instead of increasing investments, since the 80s, you see a trend in which corporations are reducing the level of investments. Investments meaning what exactly? Meaning opening new factories, uh, doing a new projects. Okay, so the level of investments in order to, to grow the corporation, the level of investment is coming down. So seemingly they're able to 
make more money and possibly produce more while spending less. Exactly. So they invest less in, to create new factories and new projects, okay? Uh, and they invest less compared to many economic features. I don't want to bother you with that, but just, you just have to take my word for that, that they invest, invest less. And instead of investing what they're doing with the money, they pay it to shareholders. Huge amount of payouts to shareholders since the 1980s. They call it dividends. They call it share buybacks. These are just different methods to basically, instead of invest the money in the corporation, they would pay it out to their shareholders. Now, at the same time, you see that the amount of employees that are employed in publicly traded corporations is going down. All, since 1980, it's going down all the way down. Okay? So if about 40% of the employees in the United States were working for publicly traded corporations, today it's 30%. So it's huge, 25% decrease in the number of employees that are working for publicly traded corporations. And when you combine all of these facts, you see huge income inequality that is rising since 1980, reaching really new records every time. In terms and, and, and equality is being measured different ways. I don't want to get into the technical measure, but the main point of, of, of the idea of income inequality that the people at the top are making much more money than the people at the bottom, that the people at the top are getting a much greater slice of the economic activity than the people at the bottom. And now the question is why? Why is that? Okay, so so, so the, the research we're going to talk about that I, I've conducted with Doron Levit is trying to answer the question about seeing all these uh, effects in the economy since the 80s. What's, what's the reasons for that? And, 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 but we are not alone. There are others who, who, uh, who develop their own explanations right. for that. So this is the problem that you're tackling in your paper. And your argument, which we're going to get into in, in, in a second, is, spoiler alert, that these trends of corporations moving away from investment and the consequent suppression of salaries are directly correlated with the strengthening of shareholders and corporate governance. Okay, well, we're going to get into that in a second. But before, I want to know what are some of the explanations that other economists and thinkers have proffered to answer why is this happening? What are the currently popular ideas as to why are investments going down and income inequality rising? So there are several of them. Uh, the important thing to understand is we are not arguing that these arguments are wrong. That's not our claim. Uh, all we are doing is just helping to figure out all the reasons and trying to figure What's what the reasons that have more effect or more influence? And because if you want to devise eventually some solution, you better understand all the reasons and which one is having greater effect than others to target your solution. So one explanation is the fact that we have seen through the last 40 years a movement of deunionization. When you break up the unions, you basically reduce the bargaining power of employees. And when you reduce the bargaining power of employees, corporations can exploit the employees and not pay them the fair value of their work. That was one, one explanation. Uh, 
it has it has a, a, a fairly strong explanatory power, but it it covers uh, uh, I would say out of the facts that we mentioned, uh, it covers just few of them. It doesn't cover all the facts. It cannot explain all the facts that we just mentioned. Another is globalization. The fact that now corporations can outsource their production to other countries, to China, to Mexico, to other places in the world, basically reduce the uh, demand for employees within the United States and therefore reduce their bargaining power. Again, it's a different version of, of the bargaining power. Another explanation is immigration, uh, that the immigration to the United States basically uh, harm the employees within the United States, especially at the lower level of the, of the, of the employees who are less educated. Uh, but even though politically it's very charged, the explanatory power of this argument is very little. It has some, but it's not, it's not a meaningful uh, uh, influence on what we see. The greatest one, the one that, that can cover Right now, about 30% of the, of, the, of, the, of the facts that we just mentioned is technology. Technology has a huge effect on what we see. Uh, one, uh, one effect is that technology displaces some of the employees. Another effect that, that, that it sort of created wedge between the employees who are highly uh, educated and can contribute to the development of the technology and they can also be paid with options and can be paid with some other methods of, of, of payments that, that tie closely their performance to, to salaries and the other employees which basically uh, stay, stay down. Okay, so there are, you have two, two effects. One effect is that you push out some of the employees because technology replaced them and the other effect is technology is creating these two classes of employees, the, the high-end employees, which their salaries goes up, and the low-end employees, which their salaries are starting. Right, the Uber engineer versus the Uber driver. Exactly, exactly. And yes. they also interplay with each other, right? Because automation disproportionately affects people at lower-skilled jobs. Yes, absolutely. There are two more, just to complete the picture. Uh, one, one is taxes. Mm. Okay, so, so taxes also have two effects. One effect is that taxes used to be very progressive uh, 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 in the sense that you would tax the rich people more than you would tax the poor people. And over the years, this has changed and become more regressive, meaning that the taxation of the rich is not as high as it used to be compared to what what was in the past, that's one effect. But another effect is that when you tax corporations, there is a corporate tax that the, the corporation itself is paying, not just the employees for their salary. When you increase that tax, you create incentives for corporations to move their factories to other countries where the corporate tax is lower. You see many corporations are in Ireland mm -hmm. because it's 10% tax, or you see them going to other, other countries. So that also creates an effect on the, on the, on the U.S. employment. Uh, so taxes have this double effect. 
And it's proof to the lack of sophistication of our political conversation here in the United States that people seem incapable of disentangling those two types of taxation and their disparate adverse effects. This is why, for instance, from the left, you'll hear people speaking strongly against regressive taxes, but also demanding higher corporate taxes, while people on the right will demand lower taxes, period, whether individual or corporate. And it's as if we lack the vocabulary to ask for something a little more complicated, like lower corporate tax to encourage business and entrepreneurship, but a more progressive individual tax, which I think is the Swedish model. Which I believe is the right solution. Okay? So, so the right solution is, is neither the left nor the right, because the right solution is to decrease corporate tax, but increase individual tax, and, and to do, the, and you do that in a very progressive mm-hmm. way. Okay? So that's... that's uh, Uh, that's, uh, that's something that, uh, that, as you mentioned, I completely agree with that, that being forced because of your political view to hold the view that both should be high or both should be low is not necessary. Uh, the, last, the last explanation is, is the, the flip side of the, of the uh, uh, deunionization, which is basically the argument that corporations received huge market power vis-a-vis the employees, and therefore they can exploit them. And they got this market power because concentration in the U.S. increased, because there was very lax antitrust policy that allowed a lot of mergers to one corporation to buy another corporation. And as this corporation became bigger and bigger, uh, they gained more power relative to the employees, and therefore they could exploit the, the employees and the salaries that they are paying them. So the monopoly argument. It's, 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 it's um, when in, in economics, when you say monopoly, you speak about the price of product. Uh, when you want to talk about the employees, you would speak about monopsony. Okay, you can either exert a market power on the customers by raising the prices of the product, or you can raise market power against your employees by decreasing their salary. Huh. That would be called a monopsum. Okay, so now the stage is set. We discussed the common explanations for these growing trends. And you said that you don't necessarily disagree with any of them. And they each have their relative explanatory power. But also they're all missing something crucial to explain the rise in inequality. So, so they, as I said, each has... Its own explanatory power, uh, but I think that, that there is another feature which is more influential in what we see, and, and the influence of that aspect is stronger than technology, is stronger than globalization, is stronger than deunionization, and is stronger than, than, than monopsony or power of, uh, of uh, corporations because they are concentrated like locally or geography or, or, or around product. Of course, it, it doesn't negate the other explanation. It just comes together with them. So here, is an, here is a reason which is very, very influential in what it does. So at last we've arrived. What is the argument? So, so up to, again, remember that when we started, we were talking about trends since 1980. Mm-hmm. So up to 1980, uh, Basically, uh, most of the shares in U.S. corporations were owned by retail investors. Like individuals uh, could be a teacher in high school, 
uh, it could be a, a, a nurse in a hospital, they would put their savings in the stock market. So it would be millions of Americans investing in, uh, in, uh, in the stock market. When you have such huge number of, uh, of investors, it's known as dispersed ownership. So you have millions of small investors who own, who own the, the, the corporation. Obviously, they, cannot, they, are not, they don't have the competence to monitor the corporation. They are not strong enough to create some coordination among all the many investors that there, that there are. So effectively, it gives most of the power to the managers. And the managers are free to do what they believe is good for the corporation. And what they believe is good for the corporation could take into account the interest of the of the shareholders, but also can take to into, into account the interests of the employees, the interests of society, the interests of the environment where they're building the factory and the, uh, and, and the public around, around them. Uh, because there is no pressure on that, and they can do whatever they believe they want to do. Okay? Now, uh, since the 80s, the government has changed something which seems technical, but, but it's not complex to understand. The government changed the way people are saving for pension. Hmm. Up, up to that point, it was known as defined benefits. You would work for a corporation, let's say your salary was $100,000, and the corporation needs to pay you pension, let's say $70,000, when you go out for pension. So this defined your benefit. It, the corporation said, that's what you get when you go and when you retire, uh, but there was no money put aside. It was just a commitment on the balance sheet of the corporation that they owe you the money. Uh, the government changed that and said, instead of defined benefits, we will move to what they call defined contribution, meaning the corporation, let's say, will take aside 10% of your salary and put aside saving for your retirement. So that started to create huge amount of money that someone needs to manage. So if you look at 1980, the amount of money for pension was less than $1 trillion. If you go 10 years later, 1990, it was already $9 trillion. So it was increasing dramatically and, one, and all the way up to now. And when it increases, it made the, the organization who are managing money, huge organization. Mm. And their strategy is basically to take this money and diversify and invest in thousands of corporations, thousands of corporations. Okay? So if you, take, if you take the biggest one, which is BlackRock, BlackRock now manages Seven trillion dollars. This is an unbelievable number to even to hit to say. Right. It, okay. Uh, <laughs> so Vanguard. It <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vanguard managed uh, uh, six trillion. State Street managed three trillion. These are like unbelievable numbers. So if you just take these big three, okay, the money they manage is more than the gross uh, national product of China. That's just to get perspective of what we're talking here. And we're, and we're talking all pension funds? So it's pension funds, it's mutual funds. They have many structures in which they manage money. 
Okay, but the idea is that these are all uh, money that under their control. It could be either in mutual fund A or mutual fund B or pension fund C or pension fund E, whatever. But these are all resources under their control that they can deploy and decide how they are going to be uh, invested. So before we get to the point where we're The, the point that is, is is coming to what the consequences of getting such concentration of wealth in these in this what you call the big three I want to first dwell briefly on this minor point to what degree is this concentration of wealth purely the result of this single legal change in the law regulating pension funds this change from uh, defined uh, I already lost it Defined benefits. Defined benefits to defined contributions. Exactly. Okay, so the change from defined benefit to defined contribution, is this really the primary cause for this astronomical concentration of wealth? Yeah, that's the main reason. Huh, wow. Amazing how a small legal change can have such a dramatic effect. And just to be clear that we understand this, this is because before the law passed, companies were freely able to... make up their own configurations of how to save money and then pay out employees when they retire. And after the law, they essentially needed to start saving up and toss money into pension funds from the moment of hiring an employee. Exactly. So every, every person who works, they would have to put aside, uh, let's say, 10%. The employee would put aside, let's say, 5%. And that money needs to be managed. someone see this is something that as a average reader of news when I would read about the law passing it would have been struck me that it could have these consequences because when you think about this without putting a lot of uh, brain math and, and and economic knowledge into this you just see it's either you pay the money start putting up the money now or you pay it later but ultimately it is the same amount of money that is going to be exchanged in the end because the commitment is supposedly the same or just about, oh, about the same. No, it would change, it would change because uh, you don't have liquidity. You just have a line on the balance sheet saying, "We owe you 100 dollars." It's different than if someone would actually take the 100 dollars, put mm-hmm. it aside and say, "Okay, now manage that money." So before the law passed, what mechanism guaranteed that companies will be able to make good on their commitments? So, so the, it, was, it, was, it was on their balance sheet as a, as a, as a contractual commitment to their employees who are going to retire, and they had to honor that. Uh, what it means that some of the corporations would put aside money under their own uh, control, and they would have to bear the risk of fluctuations in the market mm-hmm. because they defined the benefits, they didn't define the money. Right. And if some corporation is bankrupt, then the, the people who retire will not get their pension. I see. Okay, so they wanted to pass the risk to the, from corporations to the individuals, but at least to take away the risk of bankruptcy. Uh. So that was, that was the, the logic behind that. Whether this is good or bad, I don't want to get into that now. It's a very complex story, but... But it, it, it was, it was a, a, an honest, uh, good faith attempt to improve saving for, for pension. Mm. Okay, so now we're getting to the unplanned consequences. Exactly. So what you see since the, since the 80s, you see that these institutional investors who own basically the market are increasing dramatically in power. If in 1980, they had about 
25% of the shares in the market, by now they own more than 70% of the market. Now, this is huge. Right. And if you just take the top three, well, you know, the big three, which is Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street, uh, if you consider their holding together, they are the largest shareholder in 90% of the S&P 500. So let me explain that. S&P 500 is an index that includes the largest 500 corporations in the United States. In this corporation, the largest one, the top 500, they are the largest shareholder in 90% of these corporations. Hmm. So it tells you something about their power right. over the U.S. market. So that's the trend that we see. We see a huge increase in that. Now, that's the first part of the story. Now, let's go to the other part of the story, which is about the corporate governance. From reading your article, you kind of mentioned that, you know, there, there's kind of a conventional wisdom in the field that you, you and your article and your argument are trying to like push up against. And some of that conventional wisdom is that, you know, the fact that shareholders have more power, the fact that there is strong governance is pretty much all, all, almost always a net good, right? Like this is, a lot of people would argue that this is a good thing. Can you, can you first explain why that's a kind of conventional wisdom in your field? Yeah. So the starting point is that management might be disloyal. Mm, disloyal. <laughs> yes, that's, that's the word. Management might be disloyal, and because they would be disloyal, they would try to promote their own self-interest ah. at the expense of the shareholders. For example, uh, they will buy a private jet, ah. they would have fancy offices. So it's like the WeWork example. Yeah, <laughs> and, and they would... Uh, they would try to buy other corporations just to be to create their own empire. Uh, they would engage in investment which are pet projects, something that they like personally, but it's not going to generate value for the shareholders. Uh, so the idea is that because managers are disloyal, if you leave, leave them unsupervised and unmonitored, they will do all these bad things and shareholders would lose. So if we will give back the power to the shareholders, they will monitor managers and they can prevent those inefficient investments from happening. Yeah. And is the idea there that in theory, if it's good for shareholders, it, it should also be good for a public good as well? Absolutely. So and the idea is that uh, since shareholders prevent inefficient investments and generate more value for their corporation, that's going to be good for the, the economy as well, for the rest of the stakeholders in the corporations as well. That's, that's the best, basic premise uh, in, in our field. So this simple assumption, this common wisdom in your field is what your article pushes against. And in fact, you say that this is the catalyst that in combination with that tiny little change in pension regulation, set us on the course towards our current state of income inequality. Explain that. As we mentioned, the normal convention is that if you go to strong governments, then shareholders will have more power. And because they will have more power, they can deter disloyal managers from making inefficient investments. That was the common convention. 
And because of that common convention, BlackRock and Vanguard and all these big players, over the years were pushing towards strong governance to move more power to the shareholders at the expense of the managers. And you see that trend from the 80 going all the way up, starting with the huge waves of takeovers in the 80s, 90s, you see huge activism by the funds. And after 2000, a huge activism by hedge funds, which I'll explain later what that means. Uh, but, but, but the point I'm trying to make at this stage is that you see huge shift in the balance of power between managers and shareholders. Power has been taken away from managers and given to the shareholders based on the convention that's going to be good. But like many things in life, there are no free lunches. There is no way you can shift the power from managers to shareholders, and that would not have consequences. It will have only good things happening from it. Because think about it. You have management. The risk of management that you will have either incompetent manager or disloyal manager, and that would inflict cost on the corporation. If you shift the power to the shareholders, it's the same thing. Anyone who will exercise control is subject to the risk that they will be incompetent and disloyal in different ways, but it's the same risk. So we are just trading one risk for another risk. In this context, the risk that we are facing when we pass the control to the shareholders that we are going to deter loyal managers as well. Not just this loyal manager, but the loyal manager is now afraid that they would be engaging in investment, let's say long-term investment, or visionary investment, and the shareholders will misperceive that to be a pet project or inefficient project, and they will fire them. So the deterrence effect is, is operating not just on the disloyal managers, it's also deterring the loyal managers. They are also afraid to lose their job. And I'll just give two examples which are very famous. Uh, one is Apple firing Steve Jobs. They could not understand his vision at the beginning. They thought the school is right. Thus, they fired Steve Jobs. We know later on they rehired him and, and, and corrected for that, that mistake. But not in every case someone is being rehired. You're just losing their job and that's mm -hmm. it. Uh, so you might be visionary and still lose your job. Another more recent example is the summer of 2018. Tesla was in huge difficulties. If you read the newspaper there, and if you have watched the financial news back then, they were all saying, oh, uh, Elon Musk needs to go. His role as the visionary is done. Uh, he's now inflicting damage on the corporation. We should replace him. Uh, just because there was some bump in the road. Mm -hmm. He already faced the risk that people want to replace him because there was a bump in the road. Once you cross that bump, all these people have shown to be wrong with their views because now he's dramatically up. He entered the Standard & Poor 500 index just now. It's huge, huge achievement. If you would fire Elon Musk back then, people were talking about the end of Tesla. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, the, that's the point of thinking about strong governance, having trade-offs. Right. 
And the trade-offs are that you might deter disloyal managers, but you also might deter loyal before, managers. Before you get into the effect of the deterrence, can I just ask a question about shareholders and what what why do they seem to be so short-termist? <laughs> like why why do they seem to be unable to capture what or, or at least or at least to, to, to kind of give potentially visionary managers uh, the the space and opportunity to do what they need to do the reasons in the literature for being short term is uh there are a lot of them i just take one simple one that you would uh, uh, would give would give the essence of the story okay um so let's say you are an analyst you work for an investment uh, company and your bonus is determined by the performance of, of, of the shares that you have selected. Um, so let's say you believe uh, in Tesla. Let's take it as an example. You believe in Tesla um, and you invested in that. Uh, and now it's not performing. It's going down. So your bonus is dead. Uh, and your supervisor is saying what's going on. And you might, you might lose your job. Yes. Okay, so because the people who are making the investments are being evaluated on a quarterly basis, six months, a year, their bonuses are structured in that term. So they inflict their uh, motivation on the corporations they invest in. Uh, so that's the... Their own short-term one. individual interest on the calculation. Exactly. Yes, yes. Yes. So that's, that's one, that's one exla- example. I think it's, it's simple enough to get the, how the, the, the short-term effect is, is coming all the way through the investment houses and the way they uh, motivate their employees. Uh, that, is a, that is a depressing thought. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, but sorry for the interruption. We're going to c- continue onward. You were, you were talking about, okay, so now what are the consequences of this deterrence? Yes. Yeah, so, so what's the consequences of that? The consequences is that since the 80s, more power is given to the shareholders. The deterrence of strong governments is increasing more and more over the years. Okay, so they take more and more power and pass it to the shareholders. And the deterrence effect is doing two things. Decreases investments by inefficient managers. The disloyal managers now don't invest the inefficient ones. But these loyal managers also not invest. They stop investing. They decrease the level of investment. And both of them, they have a huge amount of money now. So they start making all these payments to the shareholders. Mm. That's what you see. The, the, the first effect, reduced investments and more payments to the shareholders. That's the, the direct effect of the strong governance and movement of the power from management to the shareholders. Now. Once this happens, we can see how this creates the other effect that we were talking about. The effects are when you decrease the investments, you decrease demand for labor. When you decrease demand for labor, you decrease salaries of employees and increase the profitability of the corporation. You see the markup going up and the value of shareholders going up. That's the effect in a normal market where there are no strong black rocks, what you would see when investment is coming down, some other corporation will start increasing their investments to take advantage of the low salaries. But because they control the whole market, they prevent any movement from 
strong governments to, to weak governments, and they sort of being the police of this monopsony of, of, of reducing investment, reducing demand for, for employees, and creating the wage stagnation. I just want to pause there, Zohar, and just recap what you're saying, because I think it's, it's really important and, and really worth unpacking. So what, what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, in a normal market, lower investment would mean decrease in demand for labor and thus lower salaries. And normally that would trigger some actions, right? Like that would trigger other firms, probably those that have weak governance that are, you know, less risk averse to swoop in, take advantage of the lower salaries and make more investments. And then over time, what you'd see would be, you know, demand for labor then would increase and wages would increase too until you get this new equilibrium, right? Um, But I think what you're saying here is that because the big three are so ubiquitous, they're essentially forcing all firms to maintain a strong, to maintain strong governance, right? No matter what. And so their influence is preventing the market from achieving that equilibrium and wages keep staying low and companies just keep making profits for the shareholders at the expense of the workers. That's the story. The story is that, and I don't think they do it on purpose. I want to make sure. I think that, that these institutions uh, accept the common knowledge or the common wisdom of the scholarship that strong governments is a good thing. And I don't think that they are aware that the profitability of their portfolio is not coming from improved investments, but from transferring wealth mm. from employees to shareholders. Right. And, and I think they should be aware of that. And this is why we are, we are writing this paper to make sure that they are aware that their profits are coming at the expense of the employees and not by improving the operation of corporations. So to think about it another way, we've moved from where in the 80s we were living through, or uh, not me, but people who were living and investing in the market at that time, were living out the image of what the stock market is that most of us have, which is a lot of people putting their money aside, saving up, and and that money getting, because most people, as you said, are not necessarily active investors. So all that money gets just jumbled around between a variety of different companies. And then those companies who don't necessarily know who those investors are, don't have to pay much attention to it, just know that you know they have, I assume, some fiduciary obligation to, to not cheat them. But ultimately, they have a lot of freedom in making their own decisions as companies. Now even though a lot of us still imagine that this is the world we live in, the actual picture has shifted to actually having the power focus in the investment firms who are, in effect, the real managers of most of the companies that we invest in. So these big three or this small number of investment firms get to set the incentives for the companies. And so we get to the situation where most publicly traded companies, a market full of companies, suddenly becomes risk-averse. Less keen on taking chances on a wild entrepreneur, less keen on investing money into their own company or in their employees, because everyone needs to align their business model to the narrow interests of this tiny number of investment firms. I I feel dirty just recounting all of this. (laughs) (sighs) So what is the, the actual damage here? Can you quantify how much investment are we losing as a result of this? 
when we say, when we say that there is less investment, is the question is compared to what? Okay. So normally you would compare the investment level to the GDP in the economy, like the general domestic uh, product in the economy. How much of what we produce, how much we take and we invest for next year. Sometimes you would take measures like compared to how much money the corporation is profited and how much free cash flow they have, how much of that they would invest for next year, the years to come. Okay, so when we say less investment, is compared to what we should expect to see. Okay, so if you look up to 80 and you would try to expect what would be the level from year to year, you would see a certain amount of money out of profitability going to investment or certain amount of the money compared to the GDP going to investment. Since the 80, you see money going to investment, you see new products, but you see that that money is shrinking over time compared to the money the corporations can afford to invest or compared to the GDP in the economy. Either way, you see it's coming down. And it's not zero. It's not that they don't do anything. They, they still produce, they still invest, but they don't invest as you would expect them to do given their profitability, given the value of their shares, given their ability to raise money on the stock market, given the, the strength of the economy in given time. It's, this, is, this is the story. The story is lower than expected investment. So I don't want to uh, portray a picture in which they don't invest at all. That's not the story. The story is that they invest, but they don't invest as you would expect them to do, like the normal rate they would engage in investments up to 1980. And the reality is that small changes in investment patterns can lead to really economic-wide significant changes and consequences because you can you invest like you know several percentage less and suddenly you have real wages stagnating for over a decade. Exactly. Just to give you proportion, uh, between 2000 and 2020, the deficit in investment is about 10%. Okay, so so that we will be on the same page. We are not talking about no investment. We just say the deficit of 10% and the size of the economy will have severe consequences for employees and inequality. We started by describing the how that deficit of investment looks in terms of the stagnating wages. But what are some of the other consequences that you're, point, that you're noticing in terms of the effects of income inequality? Obviously, if you think about it, People who are making their income from investments, because they are rich, so they can invest in the stock market, uh, the fact that the stock market is going up is going to affect them more. So if you think about saving for pension, so your uh, uh, 401k, the saving for, for pension that people have in the United States, but if you have a salary of $70,000, your saving in, in, in pension fund is going to be much smaller than someone who is putting aside based on a salary of $300,000. So the effect of the fact that the market is going up is going to be much more beneficial to people who have, who have more money that can enjoy the increase in the stock market than the people who mostly rely on income from work. So the work is depressed, stock market is going up, so people who rely on income from work will be worse off compared to people who rely not just on work, but also on income from capital gains and dividends and, and other uh, uh, value that corporations are giving them as shareholders. That's very 
very strong effects. Uh, 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 this effect was 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 at the center of the book of uh, Piketty, right? Uh, who was who was discussing the the that difference between people who are making money from from salaries and people people who are making money from uh, capital gains and, and investing in the stock market, and that's that's an effect that you in our study you see that it's coming directly from the fact that shareholders are pushing to strong governance and forcing managers to focus on shareholders only and forcing them to do that in a way that decreases investments. And and some some of the consequences of what you're describing are playing out in the way that we ethically see ourselves as a society. Like you mentioned, this is what Piketty writes about in, I think it's Capital in the 21st Century, and this is what um, scholars like Michael Sandel write about. It's the virtualization of our economy, where it becomes less tethered to work and production and more to the financial market and the bouncing around of wealth. And people are seeing this. People are noticing that they're putting in all the work and are not seeing any real significant increase in their prosperity, while people who already have the wealth to throw into the financial market are absolutely thriving. They're, they're having a bonanza. They, can, they are seeing this wealth explode. And going beyond the immediate invidious effects that this has and the potential for social unrest, this is just fundamental change in how we understand what we are as a society. I mean, not to bring morality into this, God forbid, but this, psychologically, sociologically, this is profound. I completely agree with you, Adam. I think a lot of the political uh, instability that we've seen uh, through the last uh, decade are, are a consequence of this inequality reaching levels that people feel that they are living in a society which is not fair, uh, which is dividing the surplus from economic activity in a way that is uh, not reflecting the relative uh, contribution of people to, to the creation of that wealth. Um, so that's, that's, that's why we, we, we focus on this, because we are concerned about that, and we think that, that uh, it's not sustainable. You, if we just keep pushing one direction, uh, then the system, the system is, is, is not sustainable because people will not accept that. And, and for good reason, they will not accept that, because, uh, you know, why, why would you accept uh, a reality in which employees are increasing their productivity over the years, like the last 40 years, and 70%, but their salary is going up just by 10%. Why would you accept that? Uh, and and, 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 and I, I think it's a good reason for that. And, and the, the better we would identify the reason that this is happening, the better we understand the causes for that, the more we will be open to find the right solutions for it and trying to put the finger and say, okay, that's the problem. Let's try to fix this problem. Okay, so because it, it's, it's sometimes, uh, sometimes it is, it is a group interest politics that push government to adopt, uh, you know, like something that is harmful on purpose. And sometimes it is good intention of politicians who are trying to do good for the economy, but it ends up doing something bad. Right. Either way, we have to figure out what is that that is causing that. Okay? So if you, if you figure out what is causing that, then you can direct the political pressure and the political energy 
with specific goals. Say, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to change the tax law. I want you to, to, to change the laws concerning unions. I want you to change the law concerning whatever you think it's the reason that, that, that mergers of big corporations, whatever you think it's the, it's the cause for that, you can channel the, the, the energy to that place. And, and then politicians will, not, will have to act, will have to move in order to do what's right. Considering that we're talking in the midst of a very populist moment, your explanation has the significant benefit of not at all being moralizing. You're not arguing that these dramatic changes have happened due to unfettered greed and malicious intent, but rather the result of generally well-intentioned policies that have had horrifying unintended consequences. So, yeah, so, so, so to go back to something that we discussed before the talk, Nessa and I, uh, you see, now there is a big debate about trying to change the corporation, meaning instead of making the corporation centered around maximizing value for shareholders, Let's make the corporation center around maximizing value for all stakeholders. So that's, that's a, a solution that people make. What do you mean by all stakeholders? Like the employees, the, employees, the customers? Uh, customers, suppliers, uh, creditors, everyone. Uh, so, and, and the goal is, of course, to solve the problems we just discussed. Okay? So to make the corporation more... Uh, concerned about the environment, to make the corporations more concerned about uh, social issues. Uh, that's that's the that's the goal, uh, and, and 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 of course try to minimize the inequality. Uh, so, in my view, when when I think about that, um, I think that there is an agreement about where we want to be in terms of the results what type of society we want to see, what type of corporations we want to see. I think there is an agreement about that. Okay, so everyone would, would, would say, okay, it's great to be young, healthy, and rich. I don't think that there is a, a disagreement there. Uh, but I think that disagreement enters the story when you go to the methods that people suggest. How to get there? How are we going to get there? What's, what's the method to get there? And I think that the method that is focused on moving from uh, shareholders focus to stakeholder focus uh, has good intention, but it will not work. It will not work because by definition, there are conflicts between the different groups. And basically, you leave the power to the managers to decide how to allocate the resources among the different groups. Uh, Okay, so you might think that the managers will do it right, and I'm sure some of the managers will do it right, and that's going to be great. But some of the managers will do something else because now there is no, uh, no way to enforce anything upon them. They can always say, oh, we did that because this helps creditors. We did this because it helps the employees. We did that because it helps the suppliers. While when they say it, practically they would just pick whatever is good for them. And you will never be able to say, oh, what you did is just for yourself. So no, 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 it's not for me. It's for them. It's for them. They will always find one stakeholder group that they can ascribe the, the action to them. So I, I think it's good intentions, but I don't think it will work. Uh, so, so in our story, we try to get out of it. And we basically say, let's assume 
but we stay with the shareholders' focus. The same way you think about the economy, you normally, every model of economy speaks about competitive markets. What does it mean, competitive market? It means in our case, no corporation has a market power either over products or over resources. No shareholder has a market power over the ownership of corporations. No employee has a market power over corporations. So it's all, all units in the economy when they operate with no market power, each of them is the price taker. The economy will reach an equilibrium. Can, can, you, give, can you give an idiot's explanation of what you mean by having market power? So think about a monopoly over product. That's a company that has a market power. Okay, so normally we think monopolies are bad because they have market power. We can no longer trust the mechanism of the market to bring the price of the product to the, to the appropriate level because the monopoly will raise the prices. Okay? So every time you speak about uh, someone who is big enough to determine the result of the competition, then we don't trust competition because we say, okay, competition cannot work, cannot deliver what we want because some, some players in this market are too strong and they can distort the final result. For people, it's very obvious when they speak about monopoly over product. Everyone understands that when you have a monopoly over product, people will start talking about breaking the monopoly. They will start about regulating the monopoly to avoid monopoly prices. Okay? So the same story is with the operation of corporation. If you have corporations that don't have market power and shareholders do not have market power and employees do not have market power, then what will end up is a competitive equilibrium, a competitive situation in which employees will get their fair share, which means it will be tied to their productivity. Shareholders will get their fair share, which means it's going to be tied to the level of risk that they are taking. It means that management will be investing in the market in the appropriate amount that you would expect them to do, uh, even when they're trying to focus on shareholders. This is what will happen. Everyone, all stakeholders will be, uh, uh, will be compensated on, on, on a competitive way. The problem is that once you have someone who is too strong, who has market power, who can distort the, the, the result, this is where you should be concerned. And this time, it's not about monopoly over product, it's monopoly over ownership of corporations. Right. When you have someone managing $7 trillion and they own the market, they have such a market power that they can distort the result of economic activity. And they can distort it in a way that will harm the employees, whether they intend for that to happen or not. That's what's, what's happening. Right. Big players got monopoly power over ownership of shares, and now they distort the free operation of the market. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the difference. We don't, we, don't, we don't think that you need to change the focus of whether it's shareholders or not, but you, sh you need to go back to... Uh, uh, economic activity that is more competitive. So what are your thoughts in terms of solutions, ways of re-encouraging investments? Well, um, it sounds dramatic, but, but when you think about it, it's, it's the same of the solution that has been imposed when we have experienced too strong monopolies over products. 
when we have experienced two strong monopolies of a product uh, in 1920s, there was a trend to break up those monopolies. Okay, so Teddy Roosevelt, when he was uh, in charge, he basically broke up many of the monopolies that we uh, that were uh, uh, monopolizing prices over uh, over uh, products in order to restore competition in the product market. Uh, our suggestion is to do the same thing and basically break up the big money managers, uh, not to allow them to manage $7 trillion. We should put some cap, uh, let's say half a trillion, not more than that. Think about it. BlackRock will become 14 different companies. Just one company will become 14, even if you set it at the half a trillion dollars. It's just, if you look on the 500 money managers in the world, then the, the median size of, of them, of, of that group, is 50, 50 billion. So it means you can reach economies of scale with 50 billion. Okay? So why would you need, why would you need 7 trillion? Even if you say, okay, not 50 billion, 500 billion, still the level of competition is increased dramatically. So the idea is that we need to break up the institutional investors and bring them back to a level that's going to have more competition in the market and the effect that are coming from the fact that they are too strong uh, are going to be relaxed uh, and, and the competitive uh, pricing for wages and products and the level of dividends, the level of investments will come back to where they should be under competitive market. And you say that the breakup needs to take place by size, but also by type. So, so, so what, what, what's different between types is that uh, when you have uh, passive investments, they would normally buy, let's say, the standard and pool 500. They will just buy all the shares and they will not try to find overvalued and undervalued shares. And that's it. They just buy and hold. Okay. Um, when you have uh, active management of funds, they will try to identify specific funds, specific shares that are good and buy them. And those who are bad, they will sell them. And then they will try to beat the market in their performance. Today, because these two types of funds are managed under the same ownership, the voting power is exercised the same way. So there is no differences of opinion between an active fund and a passive fund. Someone from the top say, you should support, for example, uh, certain firing the managers or whatever. Okay? So they will all, will all vote the same way. Once you separate them, then the interest of a fund who's investing passively and the interest of a fund who's investing actively are not the same. And then you will start seeing differences of opinion as to how to vote on a, mm. on a specific Interesting. And it's the, the same effect that you get when you get over centralized production of companies that, that, that try to coordinate, not because of what the market wants in terms of products, but what benefits the, the other branches of the single company. Yes, exactly. Interesting. So you just make the investors more responsive to market pressures. Exactly. Yes. That's, that's, that's really interesting. What do you see as the uh, political likelihood of, mm -hmm. of somebody actually taking this up. Right. I mean, but there has been some political momentum around this idea of breaking up 
I mean, but that's, companies. That's, that's, so, right, but that's exactly my problem that I feel like yeah. they, when they have momentum to breaking up companies, it is done in a very populist, mm. um, single-minded and not undiscerning way. And I don't believe I've ever heard a serious movement to specifically target this issue. Right. And my, my concern personally with people when, with the, um, when you have a quote-unquote momentum for breaking up things is that the motivation for breaking up things is not because they're necessarily informed right. economically as to the consequences of doing so, but just because right now the, the mood is hostile to this or that company or industry. Today, Mark Zuckerberg is our great robber baron. Our boogeyman. But I don't recall ever hearing anybody expressing appetite to take down Vanguard. Breaking or up BlackRock. Yeah, or Vanguard. Yeah. Exactly. I don't remember any of our antitrust paladins making such arguments. Well, let me start by saying, personally, I believe the likelihood is close to zero. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and the reason for that is that we have researched the amount of political donations oh, gosh. that the institutional investors are making, both to Republicans and Democrats. Huge amount of money that they make through political donations. Well, they have a lot to about that $7 trillion, just give a little 0.001%. It's pretty still so significant. They, so, <laughs> so they invest a lot in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they most of the beneficiaries of that those donations are either congresspersons or senators who are in the finance committees or who are, who are there, who can, who can, who can actually uh, affect what's going on. Mm. Great. That's one thing. And the <laughs> other thing that they do is they hire the top lobbyists in Washington to work for them. Right. Okay? That's the second thing. The third thing they do they do what is known as revolving door. So they allow high-level people who are working in the government, in the treasury, or, or in some other professional capacity within the government to come and work for them once they retire for very high, very high salaries. So, so they basically covered the whole spectrum of influence uh, to achieve high level of capture of the of the of the government, so I, I personally think the likelihood of this is very very small. Uh, but nonetheless, we make that proposal because we believe that if that proposal is there out in the air, it might change the way they understand what they are doing. It might change the way they think about how they actually generate profits for their employees. Because after all, these employees are also their clients. Because it's the same employee who puts money aside for pension funds for the future. And you as BlackRock are depressing their salaries today in order to give them more money at the end, but it's not at the same, same relationship. Okay? It's like, it, it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, and, and so we believe that the change might come from I would say a voluntary move to avoid the risk of someone, I don't know, like Elizabeth Warren or someone that would, 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 would try to capture this proposal and, 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 and put it against them. So that's, that's, that's how I think about it. I don't think about it as something which is uh, we put it out and someone would actually do it. Wow. So <laughs> our hope lies on basically investment firms doing the right thing. 
Exactly. Speaking yeah. to their better angels. Um, so this is depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I would second that. <laughs> I'm going to go back to more cheerful topics. The financial crisis. As we mentioned, you are the SEC, SEC chairman in Israel. And I, I promised myself that I'll ask you about this. Um, I, I, I remember uh, visiting you here in New York. Um, I think it was a couple of weeks after Lehman Brothers collapsed and you were summoned back to Israel. We were supposed to, to spend a little bit of time here together. I remember looking forward to asking you about your work. And then that red telephone called you back home. So I, I'd love to hear some, some war stories now that we have a chance to talk about it. And also a decade later, how do you evaluate the response? as someone who was literally in the front line of warding off the financial crisis? Well, the, the crisis in 2008 was a crisis. It was a banking crisis. As I said, the banks invested in bad securities and those securities declined dramatically in value and they put the banks at risk of bankruptcy. Um, so most of the focus was trying to save the banks And through that, to save the economy. Uh, so what was, what was uh, very important back then is that there was a lot of fear. Uh, and the fear uh, was reflected in the price of bonds of corporations. So when I say bond, think about it as a piece of paper that represents a loan that someone gave to a corporation. The corporation can take a loan from the bank or they can take a loan from the public and that loan would be spread among uh, many, many owners of those bonds. Uh, and, and, and the price of the bonds basically reflects the probability that the, the company will pay you back the loan. So back then, the amazing thing to see was that the implied rate of bankruptcies that was coming out of the pricing of those bonds, meaning if you, if you the, the probability of bankruptcy is reflected in the price. So if you see the price, you can know what's the probability of bankruptcy that the market is applying. The, the probability was such that the market assumed that 50% of the corporations will go bankrupt. Can you imagine such a, such a, such a this, is like, this is like the end of the world. Uh, and, and what we needed to do as regulators back then is to take away that fear. And because that fear also stopped any, anyone from providing funds for corporations, even great corporations that could not raise money, they could not get funding for their activities. It's all shut down. So the regulators invested a lot of effort to restore liquidity to the market and take away the fear that investors had with regard to the probability of bankruptcies. And, and you could see that as, as, as those uh, actions took effect, you see that, that the bond market started reacting and, and the level of, of, uh, of fear became reasonable. So it was all about managing the signals that were being sent. Yes, it was, it, was about, it was about, for example, opening up ways for corporations to get money 
with the help of the government giving guarantees to the investors who make the, make the loan to the corporation because the government knew that the risk is, is not realistic. It's just too much. And, and give them the confidence to keep lending money to the, to, to, to the corporation. It was to bail out the banks and allow them to keep lending to, 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 to their customers. And once the government took away that uncertainty and that fear, then the market started coming back uh, to operation, which is completely different than now because now it's a real effect on the economy. So just to make sure, that if I understand correctly, at that time, it was because of you know, mathematical wizardry and financial shenanigans, the market <laughs> blew up and, and the signals went all awry and the indications that were coming in from this virtual reality of the financial market indicated as if the entire global economy, or at least American economy, was on, essentially on the verge of collapse. And the challenge was, how do you send new signals to counteract that and exactly. say, like, things are fine. This, this was just some banking bullshittery. Ignore it. Induced hysteria or something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Relax and things will regain their, their momentum and the, and the economy will stabilize. Whereas yes. today, the economy is literally being shut down. Exactly. Yeah. And the risk uh, is, 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 is real. It's not just a matter of, of right. virtual um, uh, signal management. We actually have the possibility of an unthinkable number of firms collapsing. Exactly. The sense of uncertainty can, cannot be allayed. Cool. Yes. So, so, so we're at a worse place is what you're saying. <laughs> well, why? Because it sounds to me that things are... As bad as they seem, exactly. not just seeming bad. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I, I am um, an inveterate optimist, helplessly, helplessly optimistic person. <laughs> and my experience have told me that nothing is as bad as you think, and nothing is as <laughs> good as you think. Mm. Uh, <laughs> eventually, things come back to 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 normal, and and, and we'll be back uh, to some. Uh, you know, like even if it, if we take another year in, in the long term of things, you know, like it's okay. So we have suffered the. Uh, hard two years uh but then then things will be will be okay you know like it's it, it's okay and and uh, uh i'm 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 not i'm not uh, thinking about the end of the world i didn't think about the end of the world in 2008 and i don't think about <laughs> the end of the world now i think okay it's it's, it's tough challenging we'll get over it um, I, I am a fan of eschatology, so I always think about the end of the world. Uh, I, I'm wondering about the just one more question about 2008, and then I have one last one, unless Vanessa has a, another kicker. But I'm just wondering in 2008, intellectually um, or, or historically, what was the biggest mistake that you diagnosed in terms of how regulators have responded, how your friends or your colleagues in the regulatory sector handled the financial crisis? I think that uh, regulators did not anticipate the level of creativity that people will be will engage in in creating those complex uh, uh, complex securities that became then known as toxic securities, and therefore they allowed um, it's called leverage. Leverage means if you have ten dollars, how much will we will allow you to invest based on the $10. Are we going to invest $20? Then it means that the leverage is two. Or are we going to get you to have $100? Then it means the leverage is 10. 
And then during the crisis, it was 30. With very little money, regulators allowed operations that were not strictly regulated and were not completely transparent to engage in leverage at a high, high risk, like 30 times their funds. Uh, and when, when, when it you know, like blew up, it was too late. And the handling of the recovery, things like the Dodd-Frank Act, do you think that was that took us in the right direction? Because as somebody who has no genuinely informed opinion about these topics, except for reading what other people think, I remember reading the Paul Krugmanites saying that Dodd-Frank didn't go far enough, I think. And on the other hand, the Neil Ferguson's saying that not only did it fail to fix the actual problems in the banking sector, it actually created regulatory barriers that are going to hurt the financial system in the future. And I just can't parse out who to trust and what to think. So I'm outsourcing it to you. Like everything in life, both of them are right. Mm. So, so some chapters of that legislation were very helpful and, and actually helped resolving the, some of the consequences of the, of the crisis. And some of them were more uh, motivated by, by, by some concessions that needed to be done politically in order to get mm. that through. And some of them had a, a bad effect on, on the economy. But, but, you know, like every piece of legislation, especially this huge piece of legislation, will have uh, some good effects and will have some bad effects. Vanessa, last question? No, I was just going to see if, because uh, uh, Zohar said that he was an optimist, and so I was curious if he feels like, because it, it didn't seem so optimistic, the scenario that, um, of like, of these places, these, um, common owners getting broken up. And so I'm just wondering if you think that they care about income inequality, not necessarily from like a moral perspective, but just from a, if we want to be in existence in the next 50, 100 years, we are probably going to have to take a, take a look at this income, in, income inequality piece. Um, do you think so, that will change the way they, so, they act? So, so as you see now, the, these institutions are the bigger or the biggest drivers of what is known as ESG, which is the E stands for environmental, S stands for social, and G stands for government. Uh, government. So I, I believe they do it because they understand that the future of, of us is, is dependent on that. It's important that corporations will protect the environment. It's, it's important that uh, corporations will be, will be mindful about society and will have diversity in the work. Uh, in the employment of employees, they have diversity in their board, they have diversity in their management. Uh, so all these are very important things and they, are, and they push them, push the corporations to do that and they do a good job in that. They, they, are, they are successful in, in driving corporations to improve over time uh, on, on these measurements. The only thing that we are trying to say, okay, we know you have good intention this way, but, but when you put together these three letters, ESG, you treat the G as improving governance is always going to be a good thing. And we're telling you, this is the source of the problem. And you should separate that aside mm. and think about it in a completely different way. Stay what you do with the environment. Stay what you do with, this, with, with the social uh, 
uh, conscience that we need to have in order to improve our society. But start thinking differently about governance. Governance has, has different effects than what you believe they have. And some of the effects create, it's in fact making things worse. So you should not put, uh, the ESG should not be treated as, as, as something that is all promoting good in, in, in society and in the economy. But the ES, I accept, but the G, we are trying to explain to them, we know you have good intention, but that's part doesn't work. You know what? Before letting you go, I'm going to throw something at you, see if you have anything to say about this. You might not at all. But your very research talks about how we get unintended consequences from really well-intentioned um, regulations or, or law changes. And part of the problem is that we are not agile enough as, as, uh, as an economy and certainly not as a, as a government in, in the political sense to respond to the consequences, to A, observe those ch- changes as they occur and, and, and judge what their consequences are. And then even once observed, to course correct. Do you have any thoughts on how to make this dynamic more agile? How to make the relationship between uh, public opinion, government, and economic thinking more responsive or is you publishing this article basically it? It's like you, you have to put those ideas out there and then hope that people in power will just have some sense. So my, my colleague at Columbia Law School, Professor Alex Raskolnikov, just published a beautiful paper exactly about that, about showing the good intentions of regulation and the bad consequences and how long does it take to, to see that and how hard it is to react to that. Um, so uh, maybe you should invite him for, for, for your podcast <laughs> because he, he did a wonderful job and basically explaining, one, that some of the effects take several years to see. Two, over the years, of the 40 years that we are talking about, uh, empirical studies um, started with very low quality uh, to actually give us good data. And just over the years, even the science of empirical studies had to improve to a Mm. point in which we can rely on the data that we are getting. So it's both the effects being long-term and the economists improving their methods of scientific methods to actually tell us the fact. And that took a long time. Now, the the other aspect, the third effect, effect, which is the countering it and trying to fix it, that's, that's a huge story, but, but, but you understand what I'm trying to say, it's, which, is, which, is, which is sometimes good intentions end up with, with bad results. Yeah. Well, Zor, Zor Goshen, Professor Goshen, thank you so much. I, I hope we can have you again on this podcast. I feel that there's so much more we can get into. I'm very happy. It was a great pleasure. I would, I would love to do it. I just hope that I wasn't too complex and I managed to make it accessible to a non-economist. I mean, you made, you made it accessible to me and Vanessa yes. and we were both rubes. So. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Please follow us on uncertain.substack.com. And if you want to help the kind of independent work that Vanessa and I are trying to do, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It will be a huge help. Seriously. Anyway, until next time, stay sane.
God, my voice is done. I need to go to sleep. But if you got this far, you should know, Lafroig is the best scotch. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise.